0: Welcome to SHIP Out Loud, where we amplify the voices of Hispanic leaders in STEM. I'm Chris Wilkie, SHIP CEO and your podcast host. And I'm incredibly excited about this month's episode where I get the honor to sit down and visit with a SHIP lifetime member and a complete rock star in biomedical academia. Today, we're talking with Dr. Chris Hernandez, tenured professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering at Cornell. And we're gonna talk a lot of different topics, but most importantly, you're gonna to get to hear about his success and his journey in his biomedical engineering career. We're gonna talk a little bit about how he got involved with SHIP in grad school and why he has stayed involved as not only a professional, but as a lifetime member. What it means to be fearless to him and how it's the key to true innovation And we'd be remiss if we didn't ask about what Hispanic Heritage Month means to him, given that we're in the middle of Hispanic Heritage Month right now. So without further ado, let's settle in and listen to Chris Hernandez speak out loud. Hey, Chris, welcome to Ship Out Loud. It's so great to have you with us here today. You know, love to just dive on into the conversation and I've read your bio, of course, you know, the whole membership knows you and, and your resume and it all, it, all, it all just speaks for itself. I mean, you've done so much over your career, but at the same time, you never seem to forget about SHIP. You met up with us in grad school and then it seems like we've always been just a part of your journey. And I'd love to hear a little bit about how you found us in grad school and then what really keeps you connected over all these years. That's great. Hey,
1: first, thanks for having me. This is really wonderful. And, and I I'll, I'll tell you how I started. I started as a graduate student. I joined the Ship chapter when I was in graduate school. We didn't have a Ship chapter when I was in college because the one other guy and I never got together to form a chapter. And I got involved because I wanted to work with the undergraduates and I know a lot of people, a lot of the Latinos, we don't feel like we belong in engineering or at the time people didn't feel like they belonged there and I thought You know, I'm somebody who's been through it. I can be there for those undergraduates and talk to them about what it's like. And they can see somebody who's been through it and who's right there in front of them. And what I didn't realize when I did that, I became, you know, an officer in in the chapter, went to lots of officer trainings. And what I didn't realize was the amount of professionalism that I was learning that I had not picked up in any of my other schooling you know, how to run a meeting, how to run a brainstorming meeting, how to organize the chapter, how to organize the members. And that training I got as a, as an officer was, has just been so useful to me, professional training, and it's just been spectacular. And so I see my role, I see my role really as somebody who's, who's there to, to be there for those students as they're plugging away and getting through their engineering degrees. And that's one of the things that really drives me. And so that's why I've stayed active with SHIP uh, long after I finished graduate school. I finished graduate school in 2001. And at some points, I've been a a chapter advisor for SHIP chapter. Whenever I visit another university to give a talk, I always make a point of reaching out to the SHIP chapter and trying to meet with the SHIP students. Um, Sometimes I only get to talk with officers. Sometimes I get to meet with the whole chapter, depending on the schedule. And it's really, really rewarding to talk to the students and see what they're up to.
0: Yeah. I mean, and the beauty of that is over the years, I'm sure those conversations have evolved. And, you know, what, what it took a decade ago to run a chapter and what that looks like today, the lots changed, right? And particularly post pandemic, what are you, what are you hearing from the chapters and what's on the students' minds when you talk to them? I was on
1: sabbatical last year in California and visited several chapters all over California and a lot of the chapters were just sort of rebuilding, you know, after that time when it was all online, it was hard to get people together. And so they were rebuilding and and building community. And some have this really had a, just a massive meeting of memberships and some were smaller and, and rebuilding because, you know, one of the problems was was the leadership transitions that were normally very natural before the pandemic. But during the pandemic, it was hard to have those leadership transitions within a chapter.
0: You know, we we've, we've seen it across the nation and you know, I think at SHIP we were very fortunate because our membership overall didn't drop. It just kind of flatlined during COVID compared to so many other associations that are out there. And you and still today you, you know, typically hear in the association world about the the membership drop that continues. And we haven't experienced that, but but you are correct in and that we have experienced some of the the rebuilding of the chapter piece because they you know, when, when everything went virtual, you lost that opportunity, you lost that in-person touch point. And so I think a lot of our members stayed involved, but now, now post COVID, they're trying to regroup and reestablish and, and get that in-person activity back up. And, you know, so I, I'm right there with you. And, and so, you know, when, when you hear those types of stories, what's the, if you could pick one thing that you, you kind of tell those leaders to lean into, you know, what, what are you telling them right now? It's, is to get people
1: together. And it's, your membership of your chapter is one connection at a time, and you've got to be on the phone or you've got to be shaking hands and bringing everybody's friends in and making that chapter, uh, having that community in the chapter. that's Amelia. That's what's going to hold the chapter together.
0: I mean, you know, it's a core it's a core value. It's something we we live and breathe throughout the whole organization. I want to shift gears a little bit over to to just your work as as a professor at Cornell, your research of course, you know, very renowned, it's got all kinds of funding. You've got um, lots of big players at the table, but I also know you make it an effort to recruit SHIP members into and support your research. And I'd love to hear a little bit about what some of those opportunities look like and why it's important for you to bring the SHIP members into your lab and your research. Yeah,
1: so a lot of people don't know, you know, I'm a professor at a research intensive university and that means about 60%, 60 to 70% of my professional effort is, is put toward research. And that's usually spent with graduate students in, in the research laboratory. And I make it a point of bringing undergraduates into, into my research laboratory. Um, at any time, I have one to two undergraduates for every graduate student in my lab. And that's really important to me. I couldn't have gotten into science if I hadn't been an undergraduate researcher in somebody's laboratory way back when. And so I think it's really key for me to provide those opportunities for students. And whenever I have a free opening, I reach out to our SHIP chapter and or our diversity programs in engineering and see if there are any students from those groups who are looking for lab positions. Lab positions can be competitive and it's 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 hard to find a slot. And I really wanna bring those students in and, and having that lab experience, it can help you if you go into industry, but it's really really key if you want to go to graduate school and earn a, a a PhD and so by doing that I I'm I'm helping those students get there and it's just it's just wonderful working with the students I get and at some points I've had at some points my laboratory has been over 50% uh, latino wow that's something to be proud of yeah i know <laughs> between the graduate students and and the undergraduates and then several of our undergraduates our our SHIP ship members. Mm -hmm. And some have gone on to graduate school. One's at Harvard now studying robotics and others at UC San Diego. Um, Some get these great jobs in industry. One got a job right out of my lab at Medtronic. And I remember he interviewed at the SHIP meeting. He interviewed with Medtronic. It was a group interview and the interviewer said, oh, does anybody know how to use in a materials testing device? And so he raises his hand and says, yeah, this is how this is what it's for. This is how you calibrate it. This is how you interpret the data you get. and this is how you program it. And so needless to say you got the job
0: uh, you know I don't want to dive in way deep into the data and some of that, but I know you know it, and it's something that you study regularly. Um, but for our audience, talk a little bit about why why it's so important to bring the Hispanics and the underrepresented populations into your lab. Um, yes, it sets them up for success. Yes, it gives them that experience. But the underrepresentation and some of the data, a little bit. What What are the things that really stick out to you that you're trying to overcome and change?
1: You know, our country needs engineers. We need engineers, and uh, and we don't have enough of them. We're in, we've been importing them from other countries for a long time. Great people that we're import bringing in, and um, but they have good options in their home countries now, and so we're not going to get enough of those people. So our country needs more engineers and we've got them here. We've got great Latino engineers. We've got got great African-American engineers in this country to meet all the engineering needs of our nation, but not enough of us are going through the programs and becoming engineers. And so this is an opportunity to really have impact on on our country, but it's it's also a great opportunity for us. What do I like to say is that many of our families came to this country to do the jobs that other people didn't want to do. And let me tell you, there are a lot of other people who don't want to do enough engineering. So we're here to do that job and it's good for us. It pays well, we can support our families on it and it's respected and our country needs it. And anything I can do to bring those numbers up gets me really excited. I think I was reviewing the numbers and I think at current trend, Latinos should reach parity by maybe 2050. What I mean by that is that the percentage of uh, bachelor's degrees in engineering awarded to Latinos um, will match the percentage of Latinos in the American population. But I think we can get there faster. I think we get there by 2040. I'm hoping we can get there because I'm hoping to retire around 2040. I think we can get there and I, think, and I think having faculty who are bringing students in and being role models in front of the lecture hall is key.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and talk a little bit about more about that, because, I mean, you know, we've we've got our graduate students at SHIP, we've got some graduate programming, um, we have our, our our academic partnership council, et cetera. There's a lot of linkages into academia. And uh, of course, we know it's so critical to build that's not only that STEM identity, but that sense of belonging along the way as well in order to set our students and our community up for success. What's, what's what some of the barriers that, that you're still seeing? I mean, I know we've had some movement, but I also know we haven't had the, the level of movement, to your point that you were just speaking to, um, that's going to not only keep up with the trends that are projected for the data, but what we know we're really capable of as a community. What are you still seeing as, as barriers? I mean, you're, you're on the front lines day in and day out. That's a good question. I think. I think the barriers are just
1: bringing people in and making sure they've got the skill sets for the job. To be a, a professor at a research-intensive institution, um, there's lots of skills you need. I told you about the professional skills I learned at SHIP, but there's the technical skills as an engineering professor, there's the communication skills, and then there's the politics skills that that everybody needs in whatever job they've got. And being willing to put in that effort to become the scientist, you know, it's five to six years to earn that PhD. And so to, to be in a position where you can do that, and yes, you get paid while you are earning your PhD, you just don't get paid that much. So the, getting people to that point where they're ready to do that and they can, and they can navigate the academic environment. And again, having gra- helping graduate students to navigate that academic environment is, is also key. Uh, another way I like to put it is, we just need a few of these people to become professors, right? We have a lot of them who, who who don't become professors. And that's great. They're doing what they want to do. We just need a few because we don't want situations where the students graduate from college and they've never seen a Latino engineering professor.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, that, that reinforces that whole sense of belonging, right? Yeah. And that, that desired identity. So, hey, we've, we've talked a lot about um, the importance of your research, but we haven't actually talked at all about what your research is. So, <laughs> i give you give you a little opportunity here to, to just share a little bit about some of the cool stuff you're doing, because I know um, you're at the forefront of, of your industry and your space.
1: Oh, oh thanks, Chris. Um, so my expertise is biomechanics. So we study how mechanics, mechanical engineering is important to biological systems. And I spent most of my career trying to understand the mechanics of bones and joints. So how do bones break? How do bones change in the the body to adapt to damage? Spent a lot of time working on that. And in the last 10 years, we've become very interested in microbiology. So I literally shifted the whole direction of my laboratory. We added microbiology in, and now we study how the gut microbiome influences those bones and joints. I have a new project we just started last year that I'm super excited about. We're going to take everything we know about bones that are able to live a long, survive a long time in our body and function mechanically for decades in most of us without breaking. And we're going to try and apply that to engineering materials. So we want to make materials that you make a bridge out of or a table or a wall that are loaded with living cells on purpose. And those living cells are sensing the environment and they're healing that material. It's this really cool new field called engineered living materials. So we're we want to take all the technology that people make in the biosciences and make that useful to engineers all over the country.
0: And the possibilities become endless when you're successful, right?
1: Yeah. Think, think about it. You could, you could grow a wall
0: for your building. Literally have a living wall.
1: You could, your car, your, the exterior of your car, you populate it with the right cells and you never wax it because the organisms make the wax. Wow. Right? There, there's lots of crazy things that people are talking about you can do
0: with these, with
1: this. We're just at the very, very beginning of this
0: field. Wow. That, I mean, talk about cutting edge. Talk about um, the future. You think about, you know, 2050, 2070, 20, 2080 and, and the research you're starting right now and where, where it'll be in 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah.
1: What, what I've seen is the technology a technology advances, then it becomes very cut and dry, very easy to use. So we've seen this with microprocessors. When I started college 30 years ago, if you used a microprocessor, you were probably an electrical engineer, and, but the electrical engineers got it so good that any mechanical engineer or civil engineer can pick it up and use it really well. And that's why we have microprocessors in our car tires and all over our cars and our airplanes and all these other devices that, that mechanical engineers and civil engineers use. The itself itself is no longer really an electrical engineering discipline. It's used by everybody. And that's where we're going with biology. The biology, you think right now, oh, you gotta be a biologist to do this. But the technology is becoming so easy. The, this CRISPR-Cas9 technology makes genetic engineering very easy or much easier than it was before. I think in the future, engineering is not gonna be divided up into mechanical engineering and electrical engineering. It's gonna be divided up into engineering that uses living cells and engineering that doesn't use living cells.
0: Mm. Makes sense. And that'll be a, a whole shift in the academia world and the application and industry and everything. It'll be a, a kind of turning of the industries upside down and shaking them up a little bit and putting them all back together in a different grouping. Cool stuff, man. So, I know that's, that's like, you know, your main passion, your main focus, but in our space at Ship, and, and when you interact with us so much, we, we often see a different side of you. We see this passionate professor who's so, so involved in the DE&I space, you know, the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. And I know that's a very personal passion for you. We've talked about it, you know, several times. And I guess being in the academia world, you know, I don't get as much opportunity to talk to the deans and, you know, the leaders of, of the, the institutions and the universities like I do a lot of our corporate partners. Um, but would love to hear a little bit about what you're seeing in the DEI space in academia.
1: We're seeing a lot of growth right now. I think a lot of people, since the George Floyd incident, we've seen a lot of people interested in, in diversity, equity, inclusion, and academics. Um, mm-hmm. There's been a large, a large movement and I'm seeing our, our population of Hispanic engineering professors growing. And those are good things. Everything's moving in the right direction. I've seen interest by, by universities and by faculty who were maybe not so interested in the topic before or it was something they did, but, but it was something they did on the side. And I see a lot more interest, and I'm hoping that we can sustain that interest and, and, and recognize that the DEI work is an integral part of the whole system. It's not just one thing you do. It's something that's part of everything you do.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and of course, it encourages far more than the obvious gender, race, ethnicity, inclusion. Um, it brings that diversity of thought to the table as well. And I would, I would think in the the academic and the research settings, particularly, that's extremely important.
1: Oh, yeah. You have, there have been several studies that have shown that having diversity in your scientific team or on the paper leads to more impactful scientific papers from that perspective. And many of your listeners are already aware that having a more diverse team in industry uh, leads to more profitable
0: companies. Exactly. Where well, everyone's familiar with that side of the story on the corporate side, but on the academia side, we don't hear as much about that. Chris, let's let's shift gears one more time here, and I promise this will be the last time. But you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, uh, as as we publish this month's podcast with you, we're right in the middle of Hispanic Heritage Month, and so I'd love to hear just your personal meaning behind it. What does the month mean for you? Yeah. So, I'm
1: Mexican, Mexican American. My father is an immigrant. He grew up working in the fields in Central California. And what does it mean to me to be Mexican? It means that I picked up this this work ethic from my family, every member of my family. And we do the things that maybe a lot of other people don't want to do. And we do it well. It's that work ethic that has been the secret to my success. And it's that ability to push on and do the things that need to be done. And that's what allo-
0: has allowed me to succeed. Well, you know, and it's interesting because so oftentimes I hear similar components, right? Of a different member's journeys. And that work ethic, that resilience, that fearlessness to just keep pushing. It's interesting that, you know, that's the one thing you hone in on. And and it's it's almost always either the family or something around resilience, pushing, um, Etc. And and so you know, one of the things that I've started doing is starting to socialize this concept of being fearless. And even at convention here, and believe it or not, where it's had 45 days before we're in Charlotte, um, I've got a whole series where where I've curated uh, a combination of executives and and STEM industry leaders and influencers to to come in and talk different angles of what fearless means to them and how it's shaped and impacted their career and their success. Um, you talked a little bit about, you know, just kind of pushing through that any one story or anything stick out where, where that pushing through or that, you know, fearlessness really just, it was a game changer for you. Yes. So I,
1: I'm a Mexican kid. I grew up in central California. And when I was growing up, you know, it just always seemed like um, if you were breaking the rules or even close to breaking the rules, it was a big deal for a Mexican kid. But, you know, maybe the white kids, it was their learning experience, just like that. It was, it was always rougher on the Mexicans. At least I always felt that way, right? If you were a little bit too rough on the soccer field or something like that. And so I, I grew up feeling like I had to be in line and I had to make sure I was nowhere close to those boundaries. And I had to spend extra effort to make sure I wasn't, I was away from that line because If I crossed that line, it was going to be worse for me. And so I felt like to succeed, I had to make sure I was safely behind that line. And that's how I started out my professional career. I always did things safe. I made sure that I was nowhere near the boundaries. I was very, things were going to work, right? I wasn't going to give up anything. I wasn't going to risk anything. So I had that fear of risking. And the problem with that is that if you really want to innovate, you have to be right up there at the boundary. And so if you're scared of breaking those rules or scared of stepping out of the space that everybody else allows you to work in, you're never gonna be innovating. And at some point I realized if, hey, I wanna, do, I wanna do it. I wanna innovate. I wanna do something totally new. And I had to get over that fear and get past it. And once I got past that, we were able to do some really outstanding work, some really creative work in the laboratory. I, and I saw my career really zoom up once I was able to get past that fear.
0: Yeah. So what was the, what was the project? What was the, the first time you stepped out and, and, and said, you know what the heck with it, we're going for it.
1: Uh, I'll tell you the story. It has to do with this engineered living materials thing. Okay. Um. So, so I had this, I had the, an idea for this project like 10 years ago. And I, I said, as a scientist, you submit a grant and then it gets reviews and, And I submitted this grant note, everybody was like, oh, that's not going to work. You you can't do that, right? And I think it's because they didn't think I could do really innovative stuff because I had never proven that I could. I always did, you know, cut and dry. We pretty much know what the results are going to be, but no one's ever done that experiment before. So we're going to do it, which is useful, but it's not innovative. And so I, I spent a lot of time shifting gears in my laboratory and asking questions where we didn't know if there was an answer, which is, which is risky in, in some ways, as a scientist. You know, oh, I'm going to do some, I'm going to spend months working on something. I don't know if I'm going to find anything useful out of it. But if you don't do that, you don't get to innovate. And once we started doing that, we started getting these weird combinations like, oh, what, is, what does mechanical engineering mean for bacteria? What do gut microbes mean for bones and joints? Nobody had ever asked those questions before, and when we started asking them and started getting results, everyone was interested suddenly.
0: <laughs> it's funny how that works, right? Yeah. You know, you're, you're not supposed to push the boundary, but when you do push the boundary, if you find something really interesting, then all of a sudden, everybody wants to jump on board with it.
1: Yes, yes.
0: So, so whose attention did you get the first time that you were like? had never given you the, 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 the look at all, or even paid any attention to you. And all of a sudden you hit, hit one of these innovative milestones. And who, who was the memorable person that all of a sudden was, you were on their radar? Anybody? I
1: can't give, I can't give you a specific name, but people started taking notice. They said, Oh, somebody's working on the microbiome and bone. Who is it? Oh, let's, let's ask him to give a 10 minute talk at the end of the meeting. And then I give that talk and everybody's jaws drop. And then afterwards I'm getting coffee and some of the other scientists are coming up to me and saying, wow, you are so brave to be going out into this new space. I can't believe it. That's great. And so you start getting feedback like that. And I'm like, okay, now we're gonna do more of it. Exactly. Because that's what the audience likes and it's useful to people.
0: And we're also going to stand up the Hispanic community at the same time. Oh yes. And make sure they're in the middle of all of this right here with me. Which was probably, I don't know if it, saying that it was a first is, is fair, but definitely not the norm.
1: No, no. I mean, when I give a scientific presentation, I put photographs and the names of all those students who worked on it. So I presented this work on the microbiome and bone, and then, and then there it is. Marisol Luna worked on it. Macy Castaneda worked on it. Laura Vesquez Bolanos worked on it. And everybody in the scientific community sees the pictures of these spectacular students I got to work with. And, and I have had students, I've given that presentation and there, I've had students in the room and like, oh my gosh, I never knew an engineering, Latino engineering professor before, let alone one who had three Latinos working on the project.
0: Right, and the success and the type of work that you're doing on top of it. Yeah. It's, it's truly, it's, it's definitely inspirational, but I think more importantly, it just demonstrates what's truly possible. When you bring that diversity of thought in an intentional way into any setting, you know, like we talked about, we know what the data says on on the corporate side, but you're speaking exactly to it on the academic side as well. And guess what, people, it's the same thing. (laughs) Doesn't matter what the field is, doesn't matter what the industry is, the power of that diversity of thought. Well, Chris, I always love to close my sessions um, with with kind of a, a bit of closing on food, because for me, a lot of my leadership style is grit, grace, and grilling and particularly the the power of food in not only the business world, but in our relationships overall. And I love to ask every guest, just you know, what's one of the biggest things or uh, you know, what are your most favorite dishes or your favorite restaurants that that you love to to get you know, dive into, or what's that one meal that's that comfort food for you that you'd love to share?
1: So, so I'm glad you asked about food because I do a cooking lesson with my lab every fall. And so nobody graduates from my lab without having learned how to make tortillas and mole. That's awesome. And when I, when I got married, my wife and I went to Puebla specifically for a week's
0: lessons of cooking mole. All right. So I'm going to need a recipe on mole because I love it and have never attempted it at
1: home. Oh, it, it's time intensive. And of course, I'm not as skilled as the Abuelitas in Puebla, but, but I love my mole sauce. And uh, we make it for Thanksgiving with our turkey and nobody wants the gravy. Because they just want the mole on their turkey. Oh dessert. yeah,
0: no, absolutely. Uh, I wouldn't want the gravy either. Sorry, mom, <laughs> but I would. Uh, the mole sounds amazing. Would love to to swap a recipe with you um, in the future. But most importantly, just thank you for being with me. I, I really appreciate your story and you sharing a bit about your journey and and just being here to talk out loud with us for a few. Chris, thank you so much for having me. And there you have it, everybody. What an amazing interview we just had. And Chris, I just wanna say thank you again for not only sharing your personal story with us, but all the professional insights and the support that you give to our students. I think that's uh, one of the most important pieces that you shared with everybody today. Well, y'all, we'll be back next month with another amazing and inspiring Hispanic STEM leader. And until then, you can always check us out on our website at shep.org or on our social media platforms. And to become a member today, go to our website, click join in the top right corner and enter code POD22. That's pod 22 And remember, you not only belong here, but you belong at every STEM table across the country. Well, you all take care and we'll see you next time for million.
1: Shabbat Loud was produced by Epics Productions, where we create podcasts with purpose. Hi, my name is Alex, and I'm the founder of Epics. I believe that the foundation of hate and discrimination in our world comes from a lack of understanding of those who are different from us. Check out my show, The Epics Podcast, where we step out of our comfort zones to hear the stories of others so that we may better understand them and be a part of making real positive change in the world. New episodes drop every Friday. Go to epicspodcast.com to go listen and subscribe, or go to epicsproductions.com to learn more about starting your own podcast. And be sure to follow all the shows in Epic's podcast network to hear more epic stories.